All right. Well, welcome to the Target 10 podcast, Intersections. I am your host, Matt Wagner, and I'm thrilled to welcome my two guests today, Steve Greco and Aaron Roberts. Um, I would love for you each to give us a little bit of background about yourselves, um, and then we can dive right into our topic about gay culture and mainstreaming. All right, uh, my name is Aaron. I work here at Target 10. I've been here for about nine months. Prior to that, I was living in Seattle, working for an e-learning company there. And, yeah. And he's been stuck with us ever since. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Steve, and I do things on both the commercial and the creative side. On the commercial side, I'm a partner in a company that streams classical music presentations called Classical TV across platforms. I also do creative work as a writer with Giants or Small, the production company, and I am a novelist. Also, in the past, I've been a journalist. For a long time, I was at Interview Magazine uh, at The Advocate and um, a number of other magazines. Well, thank you guys again so much for, for joining me. Um, we're going to talk about today a topic that I find very interesting, and I know from previous conversations with you both that you do as well, and that is um, the question of sort of what gay culture is and how it is or isn't um, joining the mainstream, the mainstream culture, pop culture and otherwise, um, and what effect that is or isn't having on gay culture as a whole. Um, and so I think maybe a first good question is um, what, what is gay culture to you? How would you define it? I would define gay culture as ultimately it is a place in the world where LGBTQ people um, can be themselves, can be comfortable, and there's really no limits to that. Um, it, it is about inclusivity, it's about um, building a community of people where you can really express yourself and be yourself and not feel any kind of shame about your gender, your sexual orientation, or anything related to that. Yeah, I, I, I would completely agree with that, except as someone who's lived through, you know, revolution. Um, I have to say that, though I'm delighted to be living in such a, you know, vital gay culture that seems in so many ways to be accepted and integrated into culture at large, I do miss parts of gay culture that we thought back in the old days would flower a little more uh, vigorously. You know, there's um, society loves the brunch bunch in us and the, um, and you know, the consumerists in us, but there was a whole side of gay culture that had to do with the gay imagination and gay spirit and things like that, which haven't quite made it as fully formed into the present day. And you know, we're still rooting for that. Um, and, you know, one step at a time. So I would say gay culture for me is also part of that. And we're simply trying to figure out a way to institutionalize some of those dimensions of, of, of gay identity that aren't so uh, vital as, you know, the gay marriage planning industry. And what can you maybe, for, for those who would need more concrete examples. Like what would be, can you give one or two of, of what you're describing? Well, I mean, uh, I mean, sex, 
or sexual practice is is an obvious one. Back in uh, the old days, before AIDS, there was this horizon of golden eroticized existence that went quite beyond specific uh, sexual identities then and felt like the promise of our species. And um, and uh, there were kinds of explorations and kinds of discoveries possible, you know, in every street at every moment. That got shut down with AIDS. And I would have thought that um, institutions that that helped um, us derive help sluice to culture the result of our research and development in sex would have been more prevalent now. But no, um, I mean obviously people are having sex, but it's not that same elevated spiritual thing that was so common back in the old days. Well, so one of the things that that being a, a person coming of age in the, the gay culture that we live in today, one of the things that I feel like I've been a little bit um, cheated from, I guess, in a way, mm-hmm. is being able to look back and see see a time in gay culture when, when gay sexuality was something that was celebrated. Mm-hmm. And that was such a core of who we were, and mm-hmm. so we expressed it freely and openly. And now we're moving, as you referenced a few minutes ago, we're moving into this, like, family normative version of gay culture and and that piece is being that like very animal and and basal part of our culture is being uh, um i don't know what would you say just softened yeah Um, and and, uh, i celebrate that i mean you know i would hope to have a third marriage and, and adopt kids someday myself um or have them biologically but the some of the other things that make us special that I believe in my in my in my own little brain that you know convert gay gay um, uh, traits that could have conferred real advantages on a primal horde other than more children um, aren't aren't being used as much today things that have to do with visual acuity and planning and perception of time and and, and things that we find expressions of in trivial ways now, but back in the old, in primal times, I think were essential to humanity's survival. We're kind of not getting credit for that, and, and also we're not expressing that now. Um, again, you know, kids are great, and that's a lovely thing to do, but there are all of these other things um, that gay people, I think, could, could be helpful with. So that's maybe a good segue to some degree to the question of whether or not you feel that gay culture um, is being threatened versus enhanced versus both. You certainly don't need to choose one or the other by by the fact that there is this increased inclusion and mainstreaming. Um, I think some of the benefits, like you were just discussing, are clear. Things like marriage and adoption and increased tolerance and, and all that good stuff. But um, I do wonder, sort of, as the years pass, looking at how much has changed just even over the past five years or ten years, let alone 20, um, 5, 10, 20, 50 years into the future, um, you know, what, how, we, how you think gay culture will or won't be different from, from even the way it is today. Well, don't get me wrong. I mean, I grew up in the 50s, and I knew what I was when I was five. And I went to the library and read about these people called homosexuals, and I thought... That can't be right. That's just not right. And I'll wait 10 years and things will change. And lo and behold, they did. And 
so I'm super delighted with the way things are. And like I said before, you know, one step at a time and the inclusion that we have fought for, that we have purchased dearly, that we're enjoying now is, is, is monumental. Um, but in my own life, my work as a writer is at least partly intended to keep some of these other more spiritual strains alive, perhaps for the next generation or or whatever. So I would be looking for some of that to show itself in culture if things remain safe for us. And, you know, we have to be vigilant in keeping things safe for us. Yeah, and I, <clears throat> I would agree. I think that it's wonderful that we live in a time where, where people can get married, where young people can come out and they're not facing the same adversity that they were at, at one point in their, at one point in history, how it would have looked. Um, that being said, for me, the issue comes to play when it comes to cultural value, and I feel like as time progresses, we're putting more and more value on LGBT people who choose to express their lives in a very normative way, as opposed to the LGBT people who choose to express, the, express themselves in some kind of subversive way. And our culture, for so long, was predicated off of being subversive, and now we are at a place where we can be normative if we so choose, but in that process, that is what is prioritized, that is where the value is, that is where, um, where we're, we're beginning to be taught that, that we are to thrive. Aaron, that's such a good point, and if you'll allow me to build on it, I can remember before AIDS and all of the sexualized, all of the space at the periphery of our civilization that we sexualized, you know, the piers and the trucks and the public tea rooms and all of that, one saw the seven-eighths of, one saw the, the seven-eighths of gay men who weren't the ones in what I call the brunch bunch, in the bars that were labeled as gay. You saw the seven-eighths of, of gay population who were not necessarily, you know, editors and writers. They were, you know, they're teachers and janitors and just, you know, but they didn't necessarily feel comfortable going in. So you saw those and you saw all of the straight and bi guys who wanted in a very innocent and probably uninflected way just to have some sex every now and then with another guy. It didn't turn them gay. Maybe some of them were on a path, but not all of them were. There was a vast under-the-sea iceberg of, of gay-type um, men, especially. Um, I don't know about women, um, who, whose, whose um, currents and imaginations are not included in the accepted gay stratum that we see on Will and Grace. Yeah. So I have a follow-up question for that, but I will interject. I meant to say this at the beginning, um, just to acknowledge that we're talking specifically about gay male culture. Obviously, it's three men. Um, you know, we often try to be, speaking of inclusivity, inclusive of the LGBTQ and, and otherwise. Um, but just to acknowledge that I think because gay male culture and um, female lesbian culture are fairly distinct. Yeah. Um, and I would love to do a show with two women, but it's, we're not by any means trying to cover, you know, LGBTQ culture. This is specific to gay male culture. So just to kind of throw that out there. Good point. Um, but I guess maybe my question and quasi-challenge devil's advocate question is, um, while there are certainly, to your point about kind of it's easier to, to fit into a heteronormative box, even as gay men or, or, or lesbians nowadays. What about, aren't there also a whole subset of straight people, 
whether it's like hippie types, guys that go to Burning Man and want to live that experience year-round, um, and, and a million others that I can't think of examples of who are kind of either forced to choose to abandon a particular type of lifestyle that they would ideally live year-round and maybe enjoy it once in a while the same way um, a gay male who works at J.P. Morgan might go to block party once a year and kind of let loose. Um, to what degree do you think it's different for us versus straight people who maybe don't fit into or don't want to fit into a box? Could you repeat the question? <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of us do. Do you know what I mean, though? I don't, and so I would like to introduce you. <laughs> but I think what one of the things you seem to be touching on is how much any of us self-edit to bring ourselves to the table where everyone's accepted. Having worked often, uh, having worked for ten years at Trace Magazine and in a in a black-owned, uh, you know, gay marketing and advertising. I mean, a black-owned transcultural agency for um, advertising and marketing called True Agency. I saw a lot of, of talented people editing themselves and you know watching their manners and all of that to bring themselves to the table where everyone's accepted. And I don't think any of us wants to be doing that. I think it's a big waste of energy, whether you're black, Latino, Asian, gay, woman, you know what I mean? It's like that kind of self-editing you always have to be aware of and it always creeps in there and you always find yourself doing it and it's not good. And, you know, the dominant culture may or may not be aware that it's asking for that, but it does. And I don't know if that's what you're asking, but it seems like that's the territory you were in. Yeah, to some degree. I think I guess I'm, I'm, I'm looking back to the point you made about the, the fact that gay culture has shifted to, you know, or, or the culture has shifted to value more these sort of heteronormative ideals of marriage and children and that people who don't necessarily fall into that that view are like pushed to the fringes. But I guess my point is, or question is, aren't there straight or gay that are always those who are going to be fringe minority types who don't want to fit into that dominant hegemonic, mm. you know, um, bl blueprint. Mm. Um, and so how is it, is it different for gay men in some way? Is it that, is it that there are more gay men who wouldn't necessarily fall into that lifestyle but are being pushed into it because they feel they have to? Is that maybe the point? Hmm. To put um, words in your mouth? No, I, I think that, if I understand you correctly, I think that when you're looking at, so historically, that, that level of privilege, the marriage, the family, that normative lifestyle was never something that was available to gay men. Uh, we were legally barred from entering into legitimized forms of that that type of relationship or that type of family. And now those doors have been opened. And so you're saying gay men move from the space of being automatically being subversive to now we have the opportunity to be normative. And I think that therein lies the, the big conflict within gay culture today is that this is all a very recent movement that's been happening. And so there are a lot of us who are kind of at this precipice where we have to decide Gay culture has looked like this for quite some time. Now we have the opportunity for it to look different, but why would I want to move in that direction? What, what is the, the force that is driving that? And when I look at it, I see that normative 
normative family, normative relationships, those are more culturally valued than, than any kind of subversive expression. And progress does, after all, take place on the scale of generations and not days. I remember when I, was, I came out in, whatever, 68 and started going on gay consciousness-raising um, missions in 69, and I thought, this shit's going to be solved by 70, 71. We're going to all be out in an open society and great. And then I realized that these things take generations, and I, I, I think it's delightful that a, a whole generation for 20 years may enjoy being married and raising a generation of kids before another dimension of, of gay culture is incorporated into society, even as, you know, even as trans issues are, are pushed forward and more women's issues are pushed forward, and certainly there's a lot of work to do on race, you know, these things take generations. Well, speaking of kind of incorporating, incorporating gay culture elements of it into the mainstream, um, do you take umbrage at that at all? Elements of of our, our culture kind of being absorbed. Um, and what prompts me to ask that is, I read an interesting article um, the other day by a queer, uh, like a, I think he labels himself something like radical, queer, black, something or other. Um, but it was in response to all the um, outrage over the Beyonce formation video. Um, and one of the points he made was that he's sick of um, seeing and hearing white people using phrases like on fleek, which I actually didn't yeah. even know had black origin, so that was news to me and interesting. But, um, yeah, uh, what are your thoughts on that? I, mine are very mixed. You know, the thing that comes into my mind when I think about that is that the, the show that popped up in the last year, what is it called, like? Blackish? No, the, the lip sync show. Drag Race? No, it's like a straight version. Oh, oh, lip sync battle or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember like hearing about this, and I was honestly kind of horrified that <laughs> this part of gay culture that has been a part of gay culture for quite a while, now that Drag Race and the whole drag queen experience has become much more normalized, has been pushed into the mainstream, not for for gay consumption, but for the general population, and I think that my negative feelings about that come from they're not taking they're not taking gay culture and presenting it from gay people, presenting it from a gay lens for for general consumption. They're they're taking a part of our culture and they're making it theirs, which I have trouble with. I feel the same way. I don't mind them doing it. It's going to happen. I just want credit. You know, and I feel, I, I, I mean, I think we know how much American culture has absorbed of black culture. And do you think that most of American culture really gets how much has come from black culture? I don't think so. And I just want credit, you know, for the stuff we're giving culture. And also, I mean, for instance, Halloween is changing immensely, you know, from what it used to be that I remember in the 50s, which at that point even was a parody of a religious, a fun parody of a religious thing. And now it's becoming national dress up and try something else day. And that's how fabulous is that? I mean, I think we probably need one every month. And I think it's like 
gays and trans people and and that side of culture that's saying use Halloween to dress the fuck up, have some fun, try a new way, and see how it feels. I just want credit. Interesting. And how, I guess maybe the maybe I'm taking it that statement too literally, but how would we receive credit? Or is it more just like a general awareness sort of a thing? Brought to you by, <laughs> Brought to you by America. <laughs> a hang tag, of course. I want everything to have... Brought to you by the Gay Mafia. No, endless chatter in the media and all sorts of pundits and op-ed pieces and all of this, these maunderings, some of them ridiculous and some of them wise. You know, when the New York Review of Books starts writing about what happened to Halloween, you know, and chewing on it in an academic sense and when, you know, morning chattering, screaming TV has, you know, Lady Bunny on talking about you know, wig stock, and then we'll get as much credit as we need. Okay. That's yeah, I, I, I would just interject into that, that I think that for me, it definitely comes down to, when, for, when I look at it, when, when the general culture adopts something, they have this mentality like they, they just pulled it out of nowhere. They just invented something. And what I would like to see, like you were saying, is a dialogue, a conversation, a recognition that, okay, no, we did not invent this. This came from a history. This came from, from, from subversive people creating something in their, their state of being marginalized. And, you know, people like Dan Savage have a really good a way of putting ideas out there and motivating people to not just to take credit, but to vote in certain ways, to, you know, to activate, not just to sort of bring to the next d- 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 dinner party some strong opinions, but to sort of scale the fuck up, you know? I mean, it's really about, and maybe that's just my sort of generation of movement thinking, but, you know, it's all very well to have great ideas and then to, you know, invent a kind of practice and process that allows the power of the ideas, these ideas to scale up. And obviously in a world with social media, there's never been a better um, time for it if we can pull our ways, uh, ourselves away just a few seconds a day from cute kitty pics, which, as you know, I love. Right. <laughs> love a lot. You know. And actually, it's interesting you mentioned Dan Savage because I was just watching, um, you know, a typical heartwarming Facebook video of... Um, a kid in some junior high school who has like a muscular dystrophy type um, ailment and a girl asked him to to the prom in this very cute way, you know. She said, I'll ask you to the prom when, when pigs fly and then open this box where these balloons that have been turned into pigs floated out. It was like in front of the entire gym, you know, the entire student body. Um, and I feel like those sorts of, not that they wouldn't have existed anyway, but those sorts of um, kind of, you know, anti-bullying slash giving power back to those um, who ordinarily wouldn't necessarily have it or would be ignored um, very much came out of the It Gets Better movement. Yeah, you know, he, that's right. I think hopefully we've been trending towards a kinder, a kinder people anyway, but I think he really j- gave a jolt of energy to, to the movement of kind of tr- treating people well, um, you know, not, not bullying, not being an asshole basically, and, and seeing all of these kind of, ex- uh, you know, random expressions of kindness type type videos and sentiments and whatnot um, wow. is related to it. I, I don't want to take us off topic, but did you just say that you think either the U.S. or the world in general is trending toward a k- kindness? 
Um, I feel like I don't know that. Yeah, I don't to some degree. I just wondered what you're looking at. And... I don't know about the world per se, just because I don't have experience of it. But I feel like in the U.S. at least there seems to be. I think especially maybe amongst kids, yeah, um, there yeah. seems to be a greater sense of awareness of differences and not just hating on people because they're different. I mean, sure, there's plenty of mm-hmm. um, of terrible people out there and jerks, but I just there it's, I think social media has a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. Just you know the visibility to other kinds of people and even just honestly knowing that anything you say or do can be recorded and wind up elsewhere is probably... And then the flip helping. side of that is that people who see that has an innate way to judge, ugh. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree with you. I just wonder. I hope, and I hope that's true. So here's a bit of a different, um, related but different topic slash question, and that is something that we talk about, um, and it is talked about a lot, is whether or not gay bar culture is disappearing. Mm. Um, and so I guess maybe two part question, the first would be in your experience, to what degree do you think gay bar culture is disappearing? Um, and I think the flip side of that being as it relates to apps like Grindr and Scruff. Um, and then a broader question, um, which is, uh, to what degree do you think gay culture is tied to gay bars, um, in the sense chips that result in culture, um, and do you, you know, if you do think, I guess it's three parts, if you do think gay culture, gay bars are disappearing, does that mean that it's affecting gay culture? Um, well, I think that that's a little bit more difficult for me to speak to because I have never known gay culture apart from Scruff and Grinder. By the time I came out and had established myself in the gay world, smartphones were a thing you know, we had Scruff, we had Grinder. So I, I have not personally seen like some kind of dramatic shift in which, you know, one day the gay bars were full and then Scruff came out and they were empty. Mm-hmm. That that never happened for me. That being said, I, I, I live in New York. There is a thriving gay culture here. So when I go out on Friday, I, I, I still see plenty of people going to gay bars. I, I don't think that they're disappearing. Um, as in terms of their connection to gay culture, I do think that, that they're significant. I think that there's something to be said about having these physical spaces where gay people can come together, socialize, drink, which is a gay market I know we love to do. Um, yeah, I, I think that continue to exist. You're reminding me, I'm flashing back um, when I first got to Cornell in 68, there was one place for gay people to go on Saturday night, and that was a bar called Maury's, which was normally a straight bar, but on Saturday night, it turned gay, and there was, of course, the transition hour when the, you know, the house painters and prostitutes kind of either decided to stay or had to leave, and then the gays came in for a couple of hours, and it was a place where at least we could go. I don't know how safe we felt, but we felt safe enough. And then in New York, gay bars can, did come become safe places, you know, after Stonewall, and we were resolute about making sure they would be safe, and they were safe enough for some of us, you know, to have sex in fun ways, and they were safe. And God knows a lot of the people who owned and ran the bars once the mafia was out, or sometimes even when the mafia was involved, these bar people were amazing community builders who understood how to... Um, use the power of congregation to 
to make people, to bring people to get, get together. And I, I celebrate them. And I, I don't know, I don't go to bars as much these days, so I don't know if there are any fewer or more of them than ever. Um, they're certainly louder and more crowded than ever before. And, you know, that can be exciting. Um, um, I like to think, though, that as time is going on, gay people are insisting on building other ways to be with each other, whether privately on Grinder and Scruff and, you know, doing a one-on-one or a group scene or something like that, um, as well as, you know, socials and two-stepping and kayaking and book clubs, which I know exist out there in, in number. Um, I think that takes a while to sort of build, but I, I feel it's building. And I don't think it negates bars or anything. I mean, people do love, those of us who do drink do love to drink. And, you know, bartenders know that that has to happen in moderation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, mean, I don't know if that's a response. Or yeah, no, totally. And, and I, I, I mean, I think I agree with both of you. I, you know, I'd be curious to know what someone in Seattle or, you know, um, Tucson even thinks about these sorts of things um, in terms of, you know, once, you know, are there, you know, are gay bars declining? Are they about the same? And if they do decline, um, you know, does that take away a vital part of their gay experience? Because they're, they're, they can't just walk into any, any venue essentially like we can and it's, you're bound to see a gay or two. Well, you know, you raise an interesting issue. You know, does anybody count gay bars? Does anybody count, you know, drinks served and, you know, do an annual report? I mean, back when AIDS was happening in the very first moments, it's like, who, how many people are getting sick? Where are they getting sick? What, you know, getting real information, demographic information was impossible. Even now, I'm wondering, you know, even in a place in New York, you know, do we know if there are fewer or more? Is there, who would keep track of that? Well, interestingly, I will do a shout out here to um, a friend of Target 10, Jeff Rizzoco, mm-hmm. has a project, um, the name of which is slipping my mind right now, but I'll put a link to it um, on the SoundCloud page. Um, and it's, a, it's an interactive map um, that lets you see the locations of all of the gay bars starting Fantastic. in... I want to say the 1900s. Oh, fantastic. Um, and you can That's literally awesome work. move a slider up and down, and he's done a ton of research to pinpoint. And you can even see how the neighborhood, like I think the financial district or sometime like all the way far downtown used to have a cluster of gay bars, which yeah. never, back in the day, have, I never would have suspected. And you can kind of see them like migrating. Um, and he gets his information anecdotally. I think he gets his information from all sorts of sources. Mm-hmm. I think um, internet research, old books, um, and stories. Um, but it sounds I, like amazing work. It's a cool project that I think he's looking to expand to at least San Francisco mm-hmm. and another place. I mean, because the guys have been important. One of the few places in culture that have the word gay on the door. I mean, not really, but it's like if you're gay and you think, where do I go? It's like the place that's called gay bar. And, you know, so for that alone, it's, it's magnet uh, use. It's it's been important just yeah. to get somebody into the same room who made the same choice to be in that room. Well, and on top of that, I I think that there's something to be said for the pockets of gay culture that are still considered subversive. I'm of course thinking of places like the Eagle, Nowhere Bar, these places that that still cater towards a different 
a different type of gay person than the ones you see on television most yeah. often. And I think that for the people that go to those bars, they're definitely very important, and they, they say a lot about the culture and getting that culture together and making that culture grow and thrive. Thanks for saying that, Aaron, because the places like that, when I came to New York in 75, were really instrumental in helping me see more of myself than I already knew. And having coming out of a political university background, I thought I knew a lot about myself and what I liked sexually and what I believed in politically. But then I came to New York and there was places like the Mineshaft and stuff. And I, I realized there was, you know, 28 more things that were very important to me. Um, personally as well as ideologically and you there was no book to crack to find these things that only happened on this renegade space yeah and i think something to connect actually something i was going to say earlier that that um had slipped my mind but the gay bar topic brings me back to it is i think there's something that's been a a super important part of gay culture or or a super important part of of keeping gay culture going and I think always will be even with things like the internet and and everything else is oral history Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm I'm sure gay bars were a primary method for that oral history to continue Um, if only because the gays couldn't gather anywhere else so where else are you going to even see one another in a group where you're not looking over your shoulder and able to tell stories of Fire Island and Mm -hmm. tell stories of um you know, how you met your lover and, and whatever. Mm. Um, and something I'd wonder too is back in the day, even even 15 years ago, forget about 50 years ago, um, people who, gays who were kind of keeping a large part of their identity secret or super, um, super low, um, even if they were out, um, when they got to gay bars and could finally be themselves, did they suddenly, were there these jolts of kind of cultural product um, aside from gossip, um, or including gossip, versus that maybe resulted in certain really amazing things. And this isn't the best example, but maybe the Club Kid crew could be one example. Um, you know, they they probably those those kids probably had fairly, and I'm totally this is total supposition, had probably fairly averaged everyday lives, and then they would get to the club and be these celebrities. Um, whereas nowadays. Gays can do and be, you know, more or less whatever they want, issues aside. And so, going to the gay bar is essentially just like going to the bar. You're just going to the bar to drink. You're surrounded by gays. You're cruising, but it's not like you're not you're not walking into this space and suddenly, you know, your your full personality kind of can come out. At least in major major markets mm-hmm. and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Well, I would to bring this up again. The only the only thing that I would push back against is. You look at like fetish bars or leather bars, and I think that that phenomenon still definitely exists in those spaces where you have people who go to the office every day and they put on their suit, and then come Friday night, they put on their leather harness and they go to the Eagle and they express that, that side of themselves. Yeah, I mean, so I would include not just Grinder and Scruff, which we all know about, but FetLife, which has been enormously important for both gays and straights expanding their not just their practice but how they but their own knowledge of their own desire kind of when you're making your profile and thinking well what do I want what do I say you know that kind of thought is is pushed um, by the idea that you are entering this virtual space the same way when you go into a gay bar your thought is pushed by well I might meet someone yeah interesting
Um, all right. Well, maybe one other topic I wanted to get into is um, when looking at media, which could include anything from you know TV to film, music, performing arts, etc. Um, I think there are certain you know certain industries and whatnot that that are clearly very sort of gay gay forward, call it that you know both in terms of who is behind the scenes and then also what the, the product is, like Broadway being one example. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, do you think that there are any particular, including Broadway or not, particular media or mediums that um, are, are especially good or bad at being inclusive um, and why, why you think that might be? Well, I don't think you can underestimate TV at all. I mean, TV now, with cable especially, is undergoing what I think is a golden age of great writing and great imagination. It's certainly not just gay people, but people of all kinds of diverse, you know, sexual identities are, are, are not just included, but are central to plot lines and, and scenarios. Uh, I don't think we can underestimate how important Will and Grace was. I mean, just as a fan of mass, you know, mass network stuff, Will and Grace, incredibly well-written, beautifully imagined, certainly of its time, and, you know, there are critiques, you know, of how inert, in a certain way, both gay characters were. And, you know, but it was enormously helpful for people to see. You know, I found in my own life, Boys in the Band, enormously, you know, it was a, it was a buoyant moment for me. And I knew then, this is just a bunch of, you know, shame-based guys, do you know what I mean? But the fact that they were being depicted and that they wore pretty sweaters was like, great, well, that's the important message. I, you know, that shame stuff is just put there for dramatic purposes. I know some people feel that. I don't and I won't and my friends don't. You know, just seeing these images are really important. And I think Will, Will and Grace did, did a certain similar thing for another generation. In, in terms of, of television, I think that probably... In my opinion, the place that we're seeing the most inclusivity would come specifically from streaming services. Um, you know, I think of Sensei on Netflix, which is, has become my favorite series yeah. and depicts a, a whole variety of LGBTQ people. Um, I'm thinking of Transparent on Amazon. Yeah. Hulu is putting out some really great stuff. I think that what we're seeing on those services kind of transcends what we see on on cable television, yeah. and I've been really impressed with with the work that they've done in the last, gosh, like year, two years. Yeah, is these Unsorry's series? I mean, that's actually I think that's a really interesting and great example of a show that I actually expected to be much more bro than it is. Um, it has bro elements, but they're kind of they're they're a little kitschier and and cuter than I expected them to be, and it's just so, which, what, I, what I like about that show is that it's so, any kind of, the inclusivity is so low-key, it's just, it's like very, it's very natural and built in, it's not, these are the two gay characters on that show, um, like he just happens to have this friend who's this really fun lesbian, it's not, the fact that she's a lesbian is almost irrelevant, um, so that's, I think, a good example of it. So that, like, to me, really gets it right. Well, I, 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 just, I meant, too, the way he deals with, you know, his Indianness. You know, that's... Totally, that, yeah. Too is, like, just an amazing 
Bechtel positive, not just a guy who's called, I forget his name on the series. Um, something else that's also kind of interesting as it relates to TV and, and otherwise, but is I think aside from series and, and content that's inclusive is um, shows that have very gay sensibilities that have audiences that certainly include a lot of gays, but a lot of straight people as well, who may be almost getting to the point of is gay culture being appropriated to some degree is um, uh, just very gay and it's almost like... It, it, in its inherent form, and I think a show that I think of being that way is um, Scream Queens from Ryan um, Murphy, which I honestly couldn't get get into because <laughs> it was almost too ridiculous for me. But it's <laughs> it's such high camp, um, and I feel like a lot of girls. You know, I feel like I, I picture a lot of teenage girls. I feel like the audience for that show is probably gay men and like girls because <laughs> you know Ariana Grande is on it, and those are probably her two biggest fan groups. Um, I don't really have a follow-up point to that, <laughs> but I guess, but I guess it's just interesting that there could be this almost—I don't know if I call it subversive—but this like infusion of super campy. And this is my opinion too. I mean, other someone else might not think it's campy. I mean, it is subversive. I mean, you, we see the videos of like the four-year-old boy who's just doing an amazing kind of dance routine, and it's like he's been enabled by seeing these things and he wants to do that and it's not you know I mean maybe one or two are going to be swatted down but a lot of those boys are going to grow up and say I want to continue wiggling and fucking get out of my way I, I find that very revolutionary well and what's his name the kid who um, the slightly older one who was seen in Vegas by the news camera oh my gosh. like yeah. voguing he wound up being in an American apparel campaign mm. <laughs> I didn't know that yeah his own line of stretch pants <laughs> Something like that. Um, cool. We have covered quite a lot. Um, maybe one, unless you guys have anything else you want to talk about, maybe one final question. This is putting you on the spot a little bit because I didn't ask you to prepare anything in advance, but are there any particular, I know you've got, gay cultural, gay cultural content that you think would be kind of requisite um, and I know there's a lot, but like if you could name a couple of things that, or that is just your favorite that you would recommend people check out. Um, well, uh, Matt's pointing to me. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> Steve Greco. Um, well, I, 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 you know, I one of the things that I do is uh, administrate this LGBT fiction award for the last 28 years that I co-founded. It's called the Les, uh, the Farrow Rumley Literary Awards, and we are in the final judging period of, um, you know, judging the novels that have come out last year and our prize, our ceremony is in April, but I'm knocked out. I mean, I'm just floored by the diversity, the power, the depth, the sensibility, the subtlety of thinking of the authors who have submitted, whose publishers have submitted this year, I don't know, 55, 60 books, including some magnificent great books that will be read 400 years from now. I, I, I don't want to name any because that might be unfair, you know, while we'll be doing our finalist list, but I'll tell you, you know, if you want to read a book, read one of the books by the LGBT authors that have been done last year. They're just amazing. Amazing. And they're not all kind of highfalutin literary. Some are, and some are young adult, and some uh, we even, you know, graphic novels. I mean, there's just amazing stuff out there. I, I'm very bully about that. It's cool. 
Well, I mentioned my favorite TV show right now, which is Sensei. Right. It's fabulous, and everyone should go watch it. Cool. Well, I will put links to both Sensei and uh, the Fair <laughs> Company uh, website as well. Um, well. I think that that about wraps things up. So thank you guys again for a very stimulating conversation. You're welcome. And um, this should be up at some point in the next week. So thank you guys for listening. And it looks like we have one Periscoper. So hello to you. <laughs> it's probably my mom. Um, and until next time. <laughs>